Uh, g'day, my name's Jono. I'm uh, one of the pastors at church here. And, um, well, look, it's, I'm so glad that Hazy, myself and Tamara all got the memo about our uniform tonight. <laughs> Light jeans, dark t-shirt, well done. Open shoes, that's good. Um, but no, in all seriousness, welcome. It's, it's great to be together. Um, and I really do hope, if you're new with us, you have a great time as well. Um, it, it's going to be a really good time, particularly as we dig into uh, John chapter 13 here which is a wonderful part of the Bible. And so let me, let me pray for us now uh, that God would do a great work in us by His Word, by His Spirit. And we'll look at this together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank You so much for the joy it is to listen to the voice of the God of the universe. Thank You that we've already feasted as we've heard Your Word read to us. And we pray now, Lord, that You would open our eyes to understand what it means, help us to to know you better, to know the person Jesus better in all of this. And we pray that you would be transforming us into his likeness and helping us to fix our eyes more and more on our great Saviour Jesus. Amen. Well, what do you do with the problem of power, power inequality? Now, history is full of examples of people using and abusing power Uh, to get their way ahead in life. Our world today continues to be full of the same thing, misused power, Uh, or even just little imbalance, or massive, large imbalances of power. The weak oppressed by the strong, or sometimes just the the weak forgotten altogether. There's so many examples of this in our world. Now, one example which remains really close to home for all Australians is the treatment and the plight of Australians, uh, our First Nations people. By force, their land was taken away from them. It wasn't until the 1960s that Indigenous Australians were even allowed to vote in federal elections. Government policies saw children taken away from their families in the stolen generation right up to the 1970s. And although there's been some good progress in all of this, still today, Indigenous Australians experience high levels of poverty, poorer health outcomes, limited access to education and health services. They're overrepresented in our prisons... This is a major issue that continues today to deserve careful attention for all Australians. But what do you do about that? How can we see change? What will help that sort of a power imbalance? Now, many people would point to power being the key issue at stake here. Power inequality is the problem. And so, if we can fix the power inequalities in our world, then we'll fix all the problems as well. It's all about power, says our world. Now, another example of just another power inequality in our world is just wealth, our nation's wealth. I don't know if you know this, but the top 1% of Australians have more wealth than the bottom 70% of our population. That's the extreme example of the really, really rich. But the reality is our society is made up of the haves and the have-nots. There are some people who have a home that they own and three investment properties as well. And for most of us here in this room, it's probably the case if you're born after the year 2000, you might need to live with mum and dad for the rest of your life, it seems. As the old saying goes, money is power. And it's true. Money does bring a whole bunch of power. And so, the result is that our world, again, is filled with a whole bunch of inequality. Now, the same can be said for physical strength. 
or intellect or social status. You could go on and on, but what do you do about all of this? What do you do about all this inequality of power in our world? These are real problems that deserve real answers. Now, our world's answer is to notice the problem of power and so fixate on it and zoom in on it and make power everything. Put that at the centre of everything. Find out what all the deal with power is and redistribute it. That's going to solve our world's problems. If power is the root of all our problems, then zoom in on that and that's going to be the answer of the world. Our world says power is at the centre of all of our relationships. It governs everything. And so that's how you fix the world's problems. Now, there's actually a lot to like about what's been said there. It's good to help people realise when there is massive inequality of power or notice power dynamics within relationships or even within whole social systems. All that's good. It's good to empower those who've historically been powerless. That's, that's a good thing as well. But the problem is, these solutions, they, they all end up falling short. They don't hit the mark fully because the reality is there's some types of power that you can't just redistribute and and move around. Physical strength, for example, kind of just is what it is. You can't create a democracy of muscle in our world. Now, the same thing is true of intellect, isn't it? The reality is that there are some people who are born with greater intellect than others. You could look for an equality of opportunity of education, true, but you can't erase differences in power in our world. What what about that example of the rich that I gave a second ago? Uh, Money. (laughs) We can't just go around in our world and force everyone to all have the exact same amount of money and therefore power, can we? Because that actually becomes impossible to police. If you gave someone the job of making sure everyone all had the exact same amount of thing, well, you'd be a communist country at that point, but inevitably, what would happen? The person who you gave the job to to make sure everyone had the same amount of power would become the powerful person. You can't solve everything just by playing endlessly with this power dial. Now, why can't you solve it that way? Well, ultimately, it's because there's a problem in the human heart. So, what we need is something deeper than an outside voice that's going to come and police all the power and manage all the power dynamics in your world. That's impossible. Instead, what's needed is a radical change of perspective, a radical change in the human heart. And that's what Jesus brings here in John chapter 13, a radical new perspective on power and relationships and life itself. That's what's on view here in John 13. And so, my hope tonight, as we come into this passage and dig into it, is that we're going to be called to something that's so much more beautiful and wonderful and worthwhile than a world that revolves around power. There's something better at the heart of human relationships. There's something so much better than power. That's what's on offer here from Jesus. Now, this wonderful new perspective on power and life, it actually comes in the context of a really awkward dinner party. I don't know if you felt that as we read the Bible tonight. Take a look at the, look at the passage there, look at verse 1, it gives us a context. It says, it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So, two big things are kind of casting a shadow over this meal. Number one, Jesus' death. 
the hour where He will leave this world. Notice it mentions the Passover festival there, that's where the Passover lamb was killed to shield people from the anger of God, they're remembering the Passover, this is Jesus' death, is the thing that's casting a shadow over this meal. And secondly, the big thing is Jesus' love, Jesus' love for His own, for His followers. It says He loves them to the end, to the utmost, to the very end. But here's where the dinner party gets awkward. Verse 2, Judas, have a look there. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Judas already has it now in his heart to betray Jesus. But did you notice why there in verse 2? How did we get here? So the devil had already prompted him. Now, I remember growing up reading this part of the Bible and actually feeling kind of sorry for Judas, I don't know if that's you, but it, it felt to me like this poor guy, it doesn't seem like it's his fault, it's as if Judas seems to be minding his own business, going through life and then somehow Satan kind of jumps him and then here he is in this horrible mess, that was how I used to think about it. But it isn't that simple, is it? It certainly isn't that simple. The way the satanic in our world, the demonic, the devil, the way that functions is much more integrated into our everyday life and our own decision-making. That's how it works. The satanic doesn't just kind of run roughshod over you and roll you even though you'd rather not and suddenly you find yourself murdering someone, how did that happen? Rather, Satan is at work amidst our own sinful, willful, accountable choices. Now, we actually got an insight into that back in chapter 12, verse 6, if you were with us the other week. It talked about how Judas, back in chapter 12, he sees Jesus getting his feet washed by Mary, remember, with the really um, valuable perfume, and Judas is like, oh, we shouldn't do this, we should give that money to the poor. And then John tells us, but actually, Judas had been stealing money from the money bag for a long time. So, Judas's heart is long gone already. He's willfully been choosing evil for a long time now. And so, to say here in verse 2 that Satan prompted Judas is not to say that that was over and against his judgment as if he was trying to be a good guy and then Satan came and took control. He's been playing on Satan's team. He's been choosing evil and Satan is tempted and prompted. He's at work but Judas is playing with Satan here. Now, nonetheless, all that aside, this is a very awkward dinner party. Jesus is hanging out with this bloke, Judas, who's on the verge of betraying him. Verse 3 actually gives us an insight into Jesus' headspace. Have a look at verse 3. It tells us what Jesus was thinking. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power and that He'd come from God and was returning to God. So, Jesus is, is self-aware here. He knows that all things have been put under His power. He's powerful. He's the Almighty One. He knows that He's come from God, sent from the Father and He'll be returning to God the Father soon in heaven all things are now under Jesus' power. So, what does Jesus do with all of that power that God has given him, what God the Father has given him? What does He do? Does He shoot some lightning bolts out of His hand in front of Judas, really put the scare in him? He knows that Judas is going to betray him, so he's like, watch how much this terrifies him, you know. Is He going to do another amazing sign like He has been all throughout the book? Heal someone, a miracle? Well, no. Instead, He does this... Shockingly, look at verse 4, knowing all of that, all that power, and so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist, which is how you dress if you're a servant. And after that, he poured water into a basin 
and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel wrapped around his waist. Down throughout history, Christians have copied Jesus in doing this. They've taken part in, in foot washings because Jesus says to do likewise. In fact, famously, the Pope of the Catholic Church is known to do foot washing as well, but I'd bet when he does that, that someone's made sure those feet are pretty clean before the Pope steps near those feet. Not so here with Jesus. This wasn't some planned teaching moment where he's like, you're going to need to get like a pedicure before I go near your feet tonight, and and then he does his thing. These guys have been tromping around the dirty, like, the, the streets that are shared by animals and what do animals do when they walk up and down the street they poo these guys have been walking around in dirty dusty pooey streets and Jesus jumps in and washes them picture the feet of your mate who never wears shoes you know that friend who's like walking around air and a fair barefoot try to go to the movies has to buy thongs from Kmart because they won't let you in Wombie beach car park whatever is all blistery and scabby and that's the kind of feet we're dealing with it's filthy the Son of God, down on His hands and knees, scrubbing these dirty, scabbed feet. It's humiliating. It's the job reserved for servants. Jesus with a towel wrapped around His waist, wiping their feet. Now, what does all this mean? What's the point of it all? What's the point of this whole awkward dinner party? Well, here's the big thing. We must be washed by Jesus. Now, make no mistake, friends, something incredibly deeply symbolic is going on in this passage. Did these dirty feet need cleaning before they all sat around a table for dinner? Yes, they needed to do that. It was a job that needed doing, but there's so much more going on than just dirty feet. Jesus' interaction, actually, with Peter makes that really clear. Have a look at verse 6 and you get an insight here. He's washed some feet. He comes to Simon Peter and who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realise now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Now, if you're someone who's read the Bible a bit, this is a classic Peter moment. Peter is that guy who just wears his heart on his sleeve. You know, he says, Jesus, I will never betray you. Jesus, you you will never die on a cross. Here he says, Jesus, you're never going to wash my feet. One time, Jesus turned out with Moses and some other people and he was like, should I build you a a tent, Jesus? Peter's pretty funny with the things he comes out with. Here he says, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And I think in some ways that could be coming from a good place. Jesus is his master, his Lord, he thinks it's below Jesus and probably he's embarrassed as well. Remember one chapter earlier, back in chapter 12, Jesus has just had his feet washed. Remember Mary washed Jesus' feet with this elaborate use of this perfume and her hair worth a year's wages and we saw there that Jesus is worth all of that and more. He deserves all the glory, all the, everything. He's God He shouldn't be on the floor washing people's feet. There's something right about Peter's intentions, but at the same time, he couldn't be more wrong because look at what Jesus says, verse 8 again, Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. 
Talk about coming out strong, right? It can sound like an overreaction, can't it? Imagine you're hanging out with your mates later on tonight and you're like, what should we do for dinner? Well, you're not, no, another night, you're going to have dinner here tonight. But it's Saturday night, what are we going to do for dinner? And you're like, unless we have Gosman and GYG, you will have no part of me. That's it, I've made my decision. Like, it's a very strong statement, unless this, you will have nothing to do with me. So what's going on here for Jesus? Why the big deal about having his feet washed by Jesus? Well, actually, Jesus is taking us to the very heart of the way to be saved, how you can be made right with God, how you can be forgiven. And the key, Jesus is saying, you need to be washed spiritually by me. Now, you can see this filled out in the conversation as it flows. Uh, Verse 9, He says, unless I wash you, you'll have no part with me. And then Peter says, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He kind of gets carried away at that point. He's like, okay, I've gone from you should never wash me to wash everything, just give me all the water. And then Jesus follows it up in verse 10. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean. He's saying to Peter, you are clean, (laughs) though not every one of you. And verse 11 makes clear that he's talking about Judas there, who is not with Jesus. Now, verse 10, it's a little bit hard to know exactly what, Peter, what Jesus is talking about and whether Peter's got the metaphor with what he says as well. But the point in verse 10 is this, he's saying, Peter, you are clean, spiritually, you are washed because you're one of mine. That's the big point in verse 10 that Jesus is saying to Peter. I think it's a saying, you know, those who've had a bath that need only to wash their feet. But he's saying, Peter, you're clean. You are washed spiritually because you're with me. Not so for Judas. The symbol of foot washing, you see, isn't the big deal. Judas got his foot washed as well, we presume, but he's not right with God. Peter, you are clean. He says, you don't need to have me scrub every part of your body. And so, like Peter, are you with Jesus? Are you one of His? Or, like Judas, do you remain against Him? Have you come to Jesus to be spiritually washed by Him? Or are you still carrying around the stain of your sin? You need the true spiritual washing of your soul that comes by Jesus. Now, how does this act of foot washing here in chapter 13, how does that point actually to the cross, the way we're saved, the way we're washed of our sin? Well, first of all, washing of feet is like, it's like servanthood embodied, isn't it? To wash someone's feet is the greatest act of humiliating service, it's so lowly. That's the cross of Jesus, That's what Jesus did on the cross. In fact, come with me to Philippians chapter 2 and see the way the cross is described in Philippians chapter 2. Come to chapter 2, verse 5, Philippians. See the humility of the cross. Have a look there. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather He made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So there's the humility of Jesus' incarnation as a man. But look at what he did when he became, took on the body of a man and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
the most impossibly humiliating death anyone could ever die. Do you see it? The cross is humble service. It's not just some nice gesture, it meets our deepest need. We need the cross of Christ, we need Jesus' death and so He goes and humbles Himself on a cross and dies our death, faces God's judgment at our sin, pays the penalty for it and the result was the second part of that imagery of foot washing, the result is that we're washed, our sin is washed away. Like a foot bath makes your feet clean, the cross makes us spiritually clean, such that our sin is washed away. We saw that in the reading from Psalm 51, spiritually we're made permanently clean. That's what Jesus is talking about here when He says, Peter, I need to wash you. If you're not washed by my blood, then you can't be with me. You need to be washed, Peter. That's your greatest need. That's our greatest need. Now, the starter asks the question, what do we do about the problem of power? What do you do about the problem of power? Now, this passage has actually got plenty to say about that. We'll come back to that. But before we do, we actually need to realise a much bigger thing. Every single person on the face of this planet is actually much more powerless than we would have ever imagined. In, in the realm that matters most, in the realm of where you will spend eternity, we're powerless, we're beggars. Salvation is not something that we can do for ourselves, it's something that you must depend on another for, trust another to do it for you. And so, isn't foot washing the perfect example of passivity? <laughs> As you sit while another does a thing for you, you sit while Jesus washes you. That's what Jesus is saying needs to happen spiritually. And did you notice how clear Jesus was in verse 8 there? He didn't say, unless you're washed really, really good, you can't be with me. He, He didn't say, unless you scrub yourself up real good, then you can be with me. He said, unless I wash you, Peter, you can have no part with me. Jesus put Himself there at the very centre. He's the only one who can do it. Now, again and again, the Bible uses this imagery of sin, pictured as like a stain that stains our lives, a spiritual dirt that offends God, who is holy, who wants nothing to do with sin. And so, the stain of our sin, it actually stands between us and God. And the Bible's saying it needs to be washed away. And the most serious part of that problem is that you can't wash yourself, you need another, Jesus, to come and wash you. Chapter 1 of this book here, John's Gospel, back in John, chapter 1 of John's Gospel, what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus coming? He says, look, the Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. He removes our sin from us. In fact, John, in, John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, says that the blood of Jesus, the Son, purifies us from all sin. And Jesus is saying it Himself here in chapter 13, unless I wash you, you can have nothing to do with me. I need to wash you. It's the only way to God, the cross, His blood that washes you clean from your sin. 
And so, friends, here's the big question. (laughs) Here's the biggest question you could ever ask. Have you been washed by Jesus? Have you come to Jesus for your salvation? That's a humbling thing to do, isn't it? To be told that you can't save yourself and you need another to do it for you. That's incredibly humbling, but you need to get to that point of saying, I actually need your rescue, Jesus. You need to own that to your situation before you can then depend on Jesus for that rescue, before you can humbly rely on the one who can do it, who promises that He will if you come to Him. So, friends, this is actually a personal decision that we all need to make. Every single person needs to make that decision. Am I going to come to Jesus for my washing so that I can be God's, that I can be with Him? You do that as you have Him as your Saviour and as your King. You trust Him as your Saviour, the one who washes you of your sin and you now follow Him. Jesus, you're in charge of my life. That's how you accept the Saviour. That's the best decision you can ever make. I promise you that. What a joy it is to know with confidence that your sin is gone. Your sin has been washed away. It's done. You are clean. Not because you had a really good week, but because Jesus has done it. It's the best thing in the world. Have you done that? Come to the Saviour. Secondly, though, this passage, (laughs) we need to be blown away by the humble service of Jesus. I hope more than anything else that that grips you tonight, (laughs) that you see your God here and are just staggered by it. He deserves all the praise and all the honour and all the power. He's God Himself. Verse 3 says that the Father has put all things under His control, under His power. And so what does Jesus do with all that power? He serves. He humbles Himself literally gets down on his hands and knees and he's cleaning feet, wearing a towel covered in the stain of of our dirty stains, all of that foreshadowing the moment where Jesus would carry the stain of our sin to the cross and die that humble death, excruciating, lonely, servant-hearted death for us in service of his people. Friends, this is your God be staggered by it, be amazed by it, find the joy of having your guilt and sin removed. And in fact, if you do that, you you can never be the same after you've met this Jesus. It will change everything and that's the point of these last few verses here. Have a look there, Look, look to the humble service of Jesus, see Jesus clearly and be transformed for humble service like Jesus. Now, what Jesus has done by washing us spiritually, is the means of our salvation. It's the way we're saved and that's so good but the last few verses here in this passage make clear that it's also the model that we should follow. It's the means of our salvation and it's the model that we follow. Jesus couldn't be clearer about it. Have a look at verse 12. When he'd done, when he'd, when he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. This is a command to imitate Jesus. He says, I've set an example, follow it, do what I've just done, follow in my footsteps, serve as Jesus has served you. Because if Jesus has done this for us, spiritually washed us, what excuse do we have? What act of service for another is is below us at this point? It's inescapable, isn't it? This is a really trivial example in some ways, and it might even embarrass him a bit to to tell this story, but I want to tell it. Uh, Andrew Mitchell is a man who uh, works in church here with us. He's he's basically my boss, but he's the general manager of of church here. He organises our church budget and staff and all that kind of stuff. But he's an incredibly qualified man. Uh, He left a job where he was basically leading an organisation overseeing 2,000 staff to come to our church and manage our little world here. Uh, But here's the thing about Andrew that I love. He's a servant through and through in the most simple ways. No job is below him. I remember one time after we had our big carols event here at church, there's an enormous mess afterwards, lots of stuff to pack up and I'm really tired. I've had a big day, I've done a lot of stuff and I'm kind of going, I kind of want to just go home. I'm ready to just head home and call it a day and I'm getting ready to do that mentally and then I look up the hill and I see Andrew Mitchell, my boss who kind of runs this place, heading up the hill carrying some tables to put them away up in the main hall. It's it's not like it was a particular thing that he'd been told he had to do, no one said it was his job to do, he just saw there was a bunch of stuff that needed doing and so he starts carrying tables up the hill and so guess what that does to me at that point when I see Andrew doing that? I can't help but grab some tables and follow him. If if he can do that, well, who am I to say I'm too tired? How much more Jesus, how much more the Son of God wrapped in a towel, scrubbing feet? And so what act of service is below us? Nothing. If that's where my Lord has gone, that's where I need to go. See, Jesus' way, the Jesus way here in this passage, it answers the problem of power. Jesus is offering a radical new paradigm for how you're to view the whole world, a whole new perspective on the world. And it's not one that puts power at the centre of everything. Instead, what does it put at the centre? Love. Love is at the centre of all relationships servant-hearted love for one another. Whatever your position in life, seek to be one who loves and serves others, as Jesus has done. And this gets to the problem of power, because friends, there'll always be power, there'll always be weak, there'll always be the strong, you can't eradicate that from our world, but Jesus comes and He turns the whole world upside down, He redefines greatness and He says, follow the way of love, whether you consider yourself a powerful person or a weak person or whatever, will you use whatever position you have in this life to serve others, to love? Now, can I speak to those of us tonight particularly who may find themselves either now or in the future in positions of power and influence? How will you use whatever position God puts you in to serve others? 
Are you someone who's a boss or a manager in the workplace, a business owner, whatever it is? What kind of a leader, what kind of a boss will you be to those that you actually have the privilege of leading? Display Christ's humility and love for others in the way you conduct yourself there. Are you in a job now that the world sees as prestigious or are you on track to that kind of a job? Uh, Are you still studying but that's where you're headed? As I talk to a bunch of new people around church at the moment, it seems like every second new person moving to the Central Coast seems to be a doctor and we love that you're here, welcome, it's so good to have all of you guys with us but as your career continues, perhaps as a doctor or something like that, you're going to find yourself carrying more and more responsibility and and power. What would it look like to be a servant in that place? A feet-washing follower of Jesus, even as you head into whatever doctor career or whatever it is. Are you in leadership here at church? That's a whole bunch of you, I know. Growth group leaders, uh, leaders of our ministry teams, heading up teams, maybe something up front that happens on the stage here, maybe even on the pastoral staff team as well. Remember what ministry is. Do you know what ministry is? It is literally service. Ministry is service. And friends, can I say briefly as an aside, that's why it's so chilling to hear of church leaders in our nation who are popping up in our newsfeed, who have been found to be using church and even its money to serve themselves. That's horrifically backward. Now, it's very easy to, to publicly bash the latest disgraced pastor, and I don't want to do that, but may that never be so. It's not what ministry is, ministry is service. It's not about you, it's about others, laying your life down for them, serving them. Would that be our deep DNA for as long as we call ourselves a church of Jesus? Would that be who we are? However you're gifted, strength, intellect, social status, whatever it is, if God has placed you in a place of power, however small it would be, be like your King Jesus. Be a servant. Serve others for their good. And friends, can I say, that'll change the world. It has changed the world for the last 2,000 years. Jesus has been bringing enormous change to our world. Jesus' people have been using whatever power they have to serve this world and it's world-altering. Hospitals, education, the end of the transatlantic slave trade, human rights as a whole concept, social welfare, care for the lowest in society, all of that has been spearheaded by Christians who've been deeply transformed by their servant master, Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, would the next hundred years of church history be more of the same? Servant-hearted Christians using whatever position they have for the good of those around them. That's my prayer for this group as we head out into the world. Now, let's put aside that whole grid of power that we've been talking about and just think about this. Forget the whole idea of power. In whatever circumstance you find yourself in life, whatever reason, whoever you are, how can you be a servant tomorrow? In fact, Tamara and Liam and Rach actually have served us greatly tonight, even by just sharing their lives with us, haven't they? And I'm thankful to them for that. Um, But how can you just be a servant tomorrow? 
Now, it is worth saying, an obvious thing is, if you want to build service into your life, one thing you can do is join a ministry team here at church. If you want to grow as a Christian, join a growth group and you can build that into your week as you join a growth group. You want to serve with your life, then join a ministry team and it'll be a part of your week week in, week out. It's a no-brainer. So, join a ministry team, that's a good thing to do. But some other things, some just everyone, anytime things to think about. First of all, give someone a lift in your car, to and from church. The, the coast public transport is trash. We all know it, it's terrible, especially at night time. If you spot someone who's in need, offer to help, offer them a lift, maybe to church, from. maybe that's the thing you might do every week, to love someone. Second, be a good listener, which is actually a lot of what Liam talked about, wasn't it? Listen particularly to those who perhaps don't get listened to well, be generous with your time. Think servant-heartedly about how you can even use your time after church. Who will you eat dinner with? Who are you going to sit with? Take time to, to care and listen and in fact you'll find as verse 17 says, that's the blessed way as you get invited into people's lives. Third, lift some stuff, <laughs> clean some stuff. Now, with events here at church, if you've been serving here for a while, you'll probably know that there's kind of two rounds of pack-up that happens at any event at church. The first one, like picture like a big youth event or a camp that we might go on or something like that. Picture something like that. There's two rounds of pack-up. Round number one, we divvy up all the stuff and for like 10 minutes, everyone pitches in and does a whole bunch of stuff and that's really great. And then most people leave and there's this kind of second wind of clean-up and pack-up that happens where for an hour or more, a few people are still here kind of knocking it off. Well, what if in those moments you came to the person who is in charge and you're like, hey man, I'm happy to go down with the ship tonight. I've got nothing on tomorrow morning. I want to be here till you lock up. What do you need me to do? And they're like, go do this and you go do that and you come back. Hey, what next can I do? And just keep going until you get to go home. That'd be a way to surf. You really want to live on the edge? Do that at the last day of fat coming up, our youth camp. Um, you'll be in for a big night. See you on Wednesday when you're done. Um, what would it be like to serve um, a homeless person or someone who's, who's doing it tough on the streets? When you see someone in that situation, I don't know what your reaction is, but I reckon for most people, everything in us kind of screams, don't make eye contact and just pretend they're invisible. I think that's what most of the world are doing when they see someone like that. But what if instead you stopped and you interrupted your day for 15 minutes? You said, hey, what do you want to eat? Do you want some Subway or something from Coles? I want to give you a meal. What do you want? Help someone out. Serve them. Another example, caring for the elderly in our community. Now, I chatted to a girl from EV Night, and I won't say who she is because we've done that too much and I don't want to embarrass her, but regularly she goes next door and talks to an elderly lady and just hangs out, has some tea and some chats. It's just a part of her life. Now, this girl, she doesn't need friends, she's got plenty of them, she's busy, she's got a job and uni and ministry, she's got a lot going on, but she knows that this old lady loves it and over time she's found that she loves it as well and so she goes and has tea and chats. What a profound impact it would have for that woman to learn that this girl follows the servant King Jesus. It's huge. Another example, this one you won't like me for, but... Be a servant at home, in your house. Who you are at home is the truest version of yourself. That's a saying that I'm 
fairly, fairly confident I might have made up, I hope. This is the thing I say to people when they're wondering, who should I date? Like, you know, this guy, that girl, what, what do I do? One of the things I say is, what are they like at home? What's this person like as a son or daughter, as a housemate? Anyone can pretend to be godly and lovable and nice when they want to impress someone because they want you to date them. But what are they like at home? What are you particularly like at home? If you're married, what are you like at home? To your husband or your wife? If you're still living with your folks, what are you like at home to them? If we've housemates, ditto. Humble service could just simply mean whoever you live with saying, hey, what can I do this week to help? I've got a bit of time, what, how can I help at home? What would be good? Wouldn't that be huge? Finally, share the gospel as an act of service. Jesus calls his disciples in verse 16, messengers sent by him. That's their identity, that's our identity as Jesus' people, that we're sent by him with a message. If our, if our world's greatest need is that spiritually we need to be washed by Jesus. If that's true, and Jesus says it is here, then there is no greater act of service you could possibly do than to share the good news about Jesus with someone. Now, sometimes I wonder if it feels like sharing Jesus with someone can even feel like a, perhaps a negative thing or at least an embarrassing thing that you're not very sure about, but if the reality of these things is true. That couldn't be further from the truth, could it? What better way is there to love a person than to introduce them to the God who created them, who loves them? There's nothing better you could do for a person than that. So, give yourself to serving people by sharing the gospel. I'll finish with this. Can I encourage us to routinely build into our lives acts of service, form a habit of this, Choose this on a daily basis. It's like a, it's like a pair of glasses that you put on that just brings a perspective that just says, what do you need? How can I serve you? How can I put on those glasses every day and just go, how can I serve the people around me? Form a habit of that and in doing so, you'll become more and more like your Lord Jesus. And Ben's going to come up now and they're going to lead us and serve us as they lead us in song. Um, but as they do that, can I invite us to do two things? Number one, spend some time perhaps now praising Jesus for the way He has served us and secondly, pray that we'd be like our Lord. So, do that now, take a moment to pray, reflect and then we're going to declare our God's praises.